Living with Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes Victoria with Jack Fitzpatrick. Hello, one and all. Thanks for tuning in to the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. This is a great forum for those of us impacted by diabetes, whether it be directly or indirectly, to discuss ideas, share stories and build our diabetes community. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, ex-Melbourne and Hawthorne AFL player and current Diabetes Victoria ambassador. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nations where we are speaking from today, as well as all the lands across Australia, and pay my respects to all elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in. We have a great story today from someone living with diabetes who was living the dream at one point and with their diagnosis, their life was turned upside down. But Pretty much within a year, they were back doing what they love, and they are an airplane airplane pilot. I'm talking about Ben Siv. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, mate. It's good to be here. It's, uh, well, probably not ideal to be here because that means you uh, got your diabetes diagnosis, mate. But uh, everything seems to be going well, and uh, life seems to be you seem to be killing it, mate. Yeah, well, flattered at the uh, flattered at the comments there. But yeah, I suppose you're right. You know, it wouldn't. Rather not be on the show, but at the same time, yeah, it's a, a good story to tell and we're back doing what we love, as you mentioned. So things, things are going well. Things are going really well, actually. Well, I am glad to hear it, mate. So take us back to just before you were diagnosed. So as I said, you were living the dream as a pilot, um, something that obviously you have to work very hard to do and, and it involves a lot of hard work to get there. Um, how old were you just before you got diagnosed or when you got diagnosed? Yeah, so I was... Um, I was diagnosed actually on my 27th birthday, so I was tw- so my anniversary and my birthday are the same day, which means I'll probably never forget it, which is great. <laughs> yes. Um, I was so I was 26 years old. I was um, I w- worked for Regional Express for Rex. I'd been awarded a command, which is I'd just been um, awarded a position to go become a captain. So I'd been flying as a first officer for Rex for about. Uh, just over uh, coming up to four years and then I'd been awarded this command opportunity in Perth in Western Australia and so I'd moved over to Perth in the summer of uh, 2020 and I was feeling you know this amazing opportunity across in WA I was feeling pretty pretty confident in myself pretty cool I was you know learning to fly the sub there's a bit of a distinction when you move across from the right seat to the left seat and that the responsibility goes up and the expectation also goes up so I was learning to accept and manage that added level of responsibility um, and then started to, I suppose, get the what I now know to be pretty standard and pretty classic symptoms of undiagnosed type 1. Um, I won't go into those because everyone listening to the podcast will be fairly across all of those, um, but I yeah began to began to sort of watch my body deteriorate sort of slight, um, in quite rapid fashion and that was... That was um, in February of 2021, um, and I was living in Perth with a great group of friends. And said to those friends one afternoon, "I thought, I think you need to take me to um, take me to hospital. I'm, I think something doesn't seem quite right." And uh, walked into the emergency room at um, at Sir Charles Gardner, and I suppose the rest is history from that point. So we won't go into the, you know, the signs and symptoms themselves, but how long was it from when you first started noticing that something was a little bit off to when you actually went into hospital? Uh, it was very quick. It was very, very quick. Um, yeah. I can't, I, I couldn't be able to quantify the figure, 
but it was like quite rapid the deterioration yeah. i would say um it was and and i remember in the days before my admission i i thought i had what like a bit of a cold or something like that um just like a viral sort of infection or something like that and you know to be safe i followed any you know covid protocol i did a covid test obviously i came back negative because that was you know was completely unrelated and then um i yeah just one day in particular i'd I'd actually taken the day off work because I felt pretty average and throughout the course of that day began to deteriorate significantly. Yeah. And before you were diagnosed, um, did you know much about diabetes or, or type 1 in particular? Yeah, I, I knew a bit. Um, I knew the significance that a diagnosis held with regards to my professional career. Um, I also had seen the impacts of type 1 on um, on a variety of people just by virtue of its challenges you know it is it's a it's a by the lack of a better phrase it's a bugger you know it's mm. tough and so it's it's you, i would say it's recalcitrant not to notice that it, the effect it has on people so i had i did know that you know what what it sort of what the effects it had on people and then as far as the practical management side of it i had absolutely no idea you know like i i didn't i didn't know how food like you know all that sort of stuff yeah the relationship between food and insulin and certain foods and and your body's you know insulin sensitivity and and the effects of exercises so I w- my practical knowledge of it was limited but i knew like the challenges and how hard it was as a um as a diagnosis i suppose you'd say so you're 26, just turned 27, and you find out you've got diabetes now. Men in particular, we sometimes aren't great at, you know, being vulnerable and these kinds of things. But you've all you've got two things to deal with here. You said that you at least knew what diabetes was, what it meant in terms of the challenges, and also what it would mean professionally. But then you've also got the, you know, you yourself in terms of, as you said, learning about managing this this condition. Um, Take us back to that moment and, and how you were feeling and everything that was going through your head. Yeah, very, yeah, good observation there. I um, I think uh, probably defining moment in the hospital was sitting in the ED and the registrar came in and just making conversation, sort of said, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm an airline pilot. And the colour from her face, I remember, just ran because she knew, like, the significance of it professionally and she was like wow like you know this this poor bloke's about to go through the absolute ringer um and so that was a big moment but i also and i but i do remember another moment about two days later sitting in the hospital in perth and thinking and thinking this this won't be the end of me this will just be this will be the beginning you know and feeling really like you know, to obviously you with yourself coming from an AFL football background, but feeling quite fired up, like this was my this was my big moment kind of thing. Like this won't this won't be the end of me. And you know, I think in life you you accept chat. You know, there's a very I heard someone speak the other day, and they basically said there's a temptation in life to take the easy route, but you can't take the easy route because when these life-defining moments come by, you have to rise to the challenge of it. And I felt, and and at the time, I was incredibly scared, would be the operative word, because of the ambiguity that the future held. But at the same time, I was, I was, um, 
I felt like this was something that you know I had to I had to go and um I had to go and do and be a part of basically um but I think if I was to honestly quite like as far as like raw emotion goes yeah I was I was probably scared and I was pretty anxious and I was leaning heavily on the people around me um to come and support me and like you know my mum and sister flew over from Sydney to Perth to come help me which I wouldn't have been able to go through the diagnosis you know go through those early stages of diagnosis my friends in Perth um, Tom Fergus, Jack and Phoebe, they looked after me, you know, immensely well. Like Phoebe brought, you know, brought me clothes and stuff in hospital because nothing fit me anymore and all the rest of it. And, um, and then when I got back to Sydney, I had an amazing support network of people that helped me navigate, you know, what is the tundra of a new diabetes diagnosis, the wild west, the unknown. Um, and we'll, we'll touch on that, you know, as we go down the track, but, um, yeah, I was I was scared. I was scared. I suppose you'd say would be the operative word. I was scared, but I was I re- I remember being fiercely determined to overcome it. I suppose you'd say it's not easy for anyone to admit they're scared at, at any stage. Um, but I completely know the feeling, and you know, I, I I think back, and it sounds really corny, but it's very similar to yourself. When I was diagnosed, I was you know two weeks before I turned twenty one, and in, in my third year of playing football, and I was in hospital, and I made a mini promise to myself that. Um, you know, while it was different because there was no rules sort of mandating what you can and can't do with diabetes in AFL football, I, I made a promise to myself that I can get delisted because I'm not good enough or my career can end because coaches don't rate me or whatever, but it will not be diabetes itself that stops me from playing football. But as I said, things are a little bit different. Now, that determination mixed with that, I guess, anxiousness and, and fear. Tell us about at the time what it actually did mean professionally before we get into how you started managing yourself did it automatically mean that you lost your ability to fly a plane or were there certain measures you had to get? What was the landscape like at that stage? So um, my medical, so I hold what's called a class one medical for ATPL operations, for air transport operations, basically allows me to fly in command of a airline, a transport category aircraft. It's all airline pilots in Australia hold class one medical. Um, and that was revoked, along with my class two medical, which affords me private flying, you know, in aircraft of certain weight categories and all the rest of it. And so that those medicals were suspended, um, which is completely normal practice by the regulator. It's it's not just a diabetes thing; it's any significant diagnosis of pilot faces. The medicals suspended to allow them time to recover and learn to manage their condition. Um, with me, the significance was that I suppose there hadn't been an airline pilot in Australia to fly with type 1 diabetes, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, but two things I'll say to that. The first thing is, is when I was sitting in the hospital in Perth, a very young doctor, junior doctor, came in with a, with a piece of paper that showed that there were movements towards CASA, allowing um, and looking at a reformed regulatory approach to allow type 1 diabetics to fly transport category airliners. There was definitely the potential for that. And also, Dr. Jeremy Robertson, who we'll go into in a, in a minute, had just been awarded a Class 1 medical um, and was the and he's the first um, pers- pers- type 1 diabetic to hold a Class 1 medical in Australia. So I knew that there was, a, there was an avenue back, albeit through very careful management and careful and bit of grit and determination and learning how to manage everything, I suppose you'd say. Um, 
So I knew that there was, whilst it was a very, very dim outlook, I knew there was a very, very light shimmer, a brief shimmer of light in the distance, if that made sense. So, yeah, I, I in, in accordance with normal protocol, I lost my license. Um, and in following on from that came notifying work and speaking with um, aviation medicine professionals and, and all sorts of things. So you get this life-changing diagnosis um, and at, at the same time, you essentially are suspended from working for the next period of time, which just adds yeah. to it for the next time being. Must have been a really tough period for you. Yeah, it wasn't. Um, it wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Um, but I have to emphasize, and that's where I say I was genuinely scared because I wasn't sure what the future held, but I had an amazing support network and that support network grew with every day. Um, and when I came back to Sydney, not only did I have my you know, mum, dad, my sister Lucy, I had, you know, I, I moved in with three very dear friends, Alex, um, James and Martin, you know, between the three of them, that, that the support they provided me was, was gave me the confidence to continue to navigate you know, what was in front of me and then, you know, enter Dr. Jeremy Robertson, who is an amazing human being and, in my opinion, a great Australian and what he was, you know, the support he gave me um, along with other, you know, my day, my doctor of aviation medicine, Dr. Sonnenfonsuk, um, my endocrinologist, Andrew Weisberger, like the, the support network was growing. So whilst it was a challenging time, Every day, another person would come out of the woodwork and, and help, and, and we'd be, you know, we'd, we were one step closer to an end goal. So, you talk about Dr. Jeremy Robertson, who I guess is the, the pioneer and the trailblazer, I guess. So, at least, you know, you said the outlook might have been dim, but there was a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So, if you're understanding at the time that if you get things really under control, you could potentially get back to not only working, but doing what you love and, and almost getting a but a bit of your identity back as well. Um, what was the next process in terms of, I'm assuming, you know, with that fierce determination that you spoke about and, and probably a bit of pride, how did you go about trying to get on top of it and learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible to ensure that, you know, your management was as good as it could possibly be? Um, yeah. So there hadn't been an airline pilot with type one. So that was the significant thing is that I would like, if I was to get everything, all my ducks in a line, that I would be the guy to go and, and be the test case, be the guinea pig off Jeremy's amazing work. And so I had to learn all the practical side of it. So I had to learn about, you know, there was a lot of books read. There was a lot of trips with diabetic educators, you know, Penny Morris and the whole team at the Garvin Institute. I'm pretty sure they were sick of seeing my mug after, you know, endless visits. A um, couple of silly questions asked, leaning on other friends of mine who um, are unfortunate enough, we'll say, <laughs> to have to deal with this stitch up every day. Um, and just learning about, right, what are, we, what are we trying to achieve? And it's interesting, Jeremy compared type one to that, to the safe operation of an aircraft. And I remember thinking at the time, well, that's a bit sort of outlandish. But if you look at a CGM trail and the worm, as we'll call it, it looks like the descent. It looks like the climb and the cruise descent profile of an airliner. Yeah. Climb up, you cruise, and you descend. Yeah. And now I was able to commodify it and go right. Well, actually, I know what we're trying to achieve here. We're trying to keep things within a tangible range, and I do that every day when I go to work. 
So I would compare my diabetic management to operating an airplane, basically, and that's what you know. That was what made me able to able to do it. So yeah, there was lots of books and a lot of people leaned on and a lot of reading, and it just became and it was through you know through just figuring it out, you know, ultimately, and that's where I can't speak highly enough for the professionalism of medical teams and diabetic educators and endos and doctors and all sorts of stuff. Like you know, it's. It sounds ridiculous, but who would think that medical professionals know what they're talking about? Turns out they really do. Turns out they're very good at their job. So it's not the people um, on Facebook that you went no, to school with. No, no, not the uh, not the people, the armchair critics, so to speak. It's the people that have dedicated their life to the pursuit of bettering the lives of others that you lean on, and that's why you know I was able to come back and fly. So this is, you know, starting in sort of February, March of, of 2021. What did the next period of time look like in terms of what did you do for an income? How much time did you spend, you know, going from that, I guess, you know, the learning from other people, um, from the books that you were reading, et cetera, to starting to now obviously implement it? What were those next few months? So um, Rex gave me amazing support and put me in a – ground role. So I worked within the flight operations engineering team, which was professionally a period of great development too, because I now learned a huge amount from not only the practical flying side, but the regulatory side and the design and development side with regards to performance planning and um, flight planning and things like that. So that was a very cool opportunity. And you know, I have to say thank you for Rex for you know putting me in that in that position whilst I was able to recover. Um, then came the practical management side of it, which was just learning about my body. And there was a limit of the HBA1C certification for coming back to fly under a class two medical. And there had just been, and then I'd heard about the HBA1C certification limit for class one medical as well. And so I was to have a three monthly blood test taken from um, diagnosis. And that would prove to be the first point as to how how am I tracking with regards to getting within that certification limit. And when that blood test was taken and it was within the certification limit, that was the first real step in the right direction where I was like, right, okay, we're on the way here. You know, we're looking good. Things are looking really, really good. Yeah. Um, what also happened, which is awful, and I, you know, as as an airline pilot and a professional within probably the most impacted impacted profession in the world with COVID, um, the lockdown afforded me the extra time in Sydney to really focus on learning about Type One as yep. well. Um, the lockdown was awful, and I would never, you know, I wouldn't recommend it, obviously, but it did afford me that added opportunity to read and to study my body and understand how it worked. So the first three months we got within the certification and then the next three months was about maintaining that. I was fortunate enough to do that. And then my Damie doctor, so I'm not the look after we six months from diagnosis said, why don't we, let's have a go. Why don't we submit, submit some data and just see what happens? And, he, and we did that. And Cassie came back and said, right, you know, there's a clear trend here. Everything's looking okay. We'll continue. We continued along. Three months later, we did the same again, submitted more data, and then things started to become not so much a question of, of if, but when now, because of the amazing work Jeremy and another chap by the name of Ryan Jemison and a bunch of other people had done by setting this sort of steps forward. Um, and then basically it came to the point towards the end of 2021 where I received a phone call um, saying, 
that they were going to reissue my class one medical under certain um, surveillance requirements, as is normal for any significant diagnosis, anyone coming back from a significant diagnosis within aviation medicine, received my class one medical, had my licenses all reinstated. And then on the, uh, I was diagnosed on the, so my birthday is the 6th of March, I was diagnosed on the 3rd of March, and on the 1st of March, 2022, I returned the flight deck. That is an amazing 12 months, an amazing comeback story, if you will. Um, so obviously now we're recording and it's sort of towards the end of July as, as we record this. So you've been flying for a number of months. How yeah. have things been getting back to doing what you love? Uh, it's interesting you say that. I mean, firstly, awesome would be the operative word. Um the night before my first flight, I remember lying in bed and thinking, a lot of people here have supported you and guided you through what's been a very, very challenging but also new thing in the world. So don't mess it up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so don't, you know, just because you're the guy that gets to do it, you know, you know, really the work starts now for you. You need to you need to validate the research and the hard work that people have done. And not only from a medical standpoint, but as I said, friends and family and all the rest of it. Um, but when I went flying, I thought the first day, you know, it's interesting. We, when we, as pilots, when we go flying, we remove them. We, we follow a very clear set of standard operating procedures and, and QRH procedures and all sorts of things. Um, we, I've flown more times than I've driven a car. So, we're, we're high, you know, a training captain within the company once said to me, we're highly skilled and highly trained, and we are. Um, but I thought the first day back, I would think a little bit just in the back of my head, like, oh, they, you know, this is, this is, you know, significant. But combined with the, with complying with the CASA type one protocol and all the elements that come with that, it felt like, just felt like another day at work. Yeah. Just felt like I went flying under under a training and checking environment on my first day, which is as as it should as it was. Um, yeah. As far as the last few months have gone, it's been, you know, I was able to finish off that command training I spoke about. I was checked to line as a captain with Rex, and now being checked to line and having the stability of being a you know of line operations and enjoying you know going out and flying and doing the work that I know but like doing things as normal. Um, it's just been really amazing period of stability in my life. But with it comes, you know, with opportunity comes responsibility. And there's an expect, you know, every time I fly, I'm very regimented in how I trip and what I do to my body and what I eat and how I and how I dose and and how everything works and all that data is recorded and everything, you know, is presented for study. So I'm I'm pretty um I'm pretty regimented in my day-to-day life now. But at the same time, it does feel very cool. Feels yeah. very, very cool. You know, I flew. You know, the other day, I flew with a very good friend of mine to Port Macquarie and back. And you know, we were we were it was a beautiful morning at Port. You couldn't ask for. You know, the wind was five knots straight down the runway. We were coming in. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. We had the coast down the right hand side. We had the high country down the left. And I was thinking, you know, I get paid to do this. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I get yeah. paid to do it with diabetes, which is even cooler. So, mate, uh, look, it, it's a great story. Obviously, you, you're talking about, you know, you to maintain or to get your um, the class one and type two type two medical back. You have to have had your HBA one C at a certain level. Now it's fine if you don't want to go into what that is. But talk to me about what you do 
while you're working in terms of how you manage your diabetes? In ter- like, have you ever, you know, gone low while you've been flying or gone close to it? And, you know, do you – simple thing, do you keep lollies or cans of Coke in up the front of the flight deck? Like, what is the actual practical side of when you're flying and how you manage yourself? So, there's a pretty clear-cut um, rubric or clear-cut criteria within the CASA protocol as to, as to bands and how to keep it within those bands. The short answer is no, I've never gone low flying an airplane ever. I manage my type one to a very, very tight level in the flight deck, looking in particular at stability and lines of trend um, afforded by CGM and things like that, which is why it's so significant now that the CGM subsidised because I was going to have to pay for CGM my entire airline career, which would have represented something like 250 grand over yep. a 40-year airline career. And now to have that, you know, that, that technology accessible is is massive significant um but beyond that so there's that that part of it managing stability and lines of trend um i always carry as all type 1 diabetics should rapid acting carbohydrate both on my person and in my nav bag um and within that i also you know i eat foods that i know exactly how my body is going to react to them i eat you know food in many ways goes through a ground trial period before it gets to come flying (laughs) (laughs) which is probably the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard but the level of control to, that's required to be able to do what I do. And, um, you know, it does mean there's a couple of boring boring lunches with low-carb peanut butter, you know, low-carb bread and peanut butter sandwiches and, you know, a fair bit of biltong consumed at lunchtime. But at, at, if it means I get to go flying, it doesn't really phase me all that much. So the practical management side of it, like, ask the question, no, I've never gone low in the flight deck and, and nor you know, I have no no intention ever, but based on sound management, looking at indicating lines of trend, um, careful blood blood sugar testing as dictated by the CASA protocol and and monitoring as dictated by the CASA protocol. And then lastly, of course, um, you know, always rapid acting carbs to hand and, you know, having a very balanced, balanced diet and balanced approach to how my body goes into a day at work. You know, I'm not going to go out in the morning and run a half marathon before I go flying. You know, yeah. not that I would do that anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> I just say, you know, to humor the conversation, I'm not going to go and put myself in a, in a position where I become abnormally insulin sensitive or insensitive on the day of operations. Yeah. So I want to talk to you or ask you about, you know, you you talked about, you know, even, you know, to joke about running the half marathon, but you're pretty regimented with what you're doing. Now, people would always ask when I was playing football, was it really hard? And I actually found it easier because you could work out, okay, this is what the day looks like in terms of this training, this weights program, this food worked last week, I'll do it again. And your life is quite regimented, you're quite fit and, and healthy. You said that you know, you sort of almost test the food and, and how your body reacts to that as you go on. I've noticed since I've retired that my body reacts differently. I'm not quite as fit as I used to be and therefore the amount of insulin I need has changed and the type of food I eat changes, when I eat changes. So obviously you must now have a pretty strict regime away from, you know, when you're flying, but also just in terms of your daily exercise or whatever it might be, must be very similar to keep your body in a similar condition so that things don't fluctuate too much. Yeah, I would say that's actually a really great. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not an AFL footballer as much as I wish I was. Um, it's a very different sort of. Actually, no, I don't. I wish I'm an airline pilot and I get to do that every day anyway. So I'm pretty pretty content. But what I mean was, is, is I, I, um, I think that's a really interesting comparison because you're regimented in how you 
in what you do, right? You have a set structure. Now, structure and airline flying isn't always afforded because, you know, some days you get a call or you're going to go here instead of here. But one of the things I've noticed, and it's really interesting, you, I've done, obviously, I fly the airplane on certain routes and I've done certain routes tens, if not hundreds of times now since coming back from flying. And the blood glucose pattern is the same when I eat the same. And I know when I'm going to peak and when I'm going to start to, how it's how my body is going to behave to it. And I found that is really, really interesting. And it would be reflected in the data I have um, that you can see, you know, if I'm flying to oh, Broken Hill from Sydney, you know, it's an on average about a two, two, two and a half hour sector, um, you know, sitting at 20,000 feet doing the best part about 500 Ks an hour, you sort of, it's interesting. I see how my body reacts at certain times of days and I've seen it's consistent. So you are able to plan. Um, but the important word there is plan. You have to be able to run and, and keep an eye on things because if you don't, and that's the same with not only managing type one in the context of a flight deck, but managing type one full stop is in my limited experience anyway, is you, you know, prior planning prevents poor performance. And if you have everything yeah. organized and you know how your body reacts through, through routine, as you've said, when you were training, um, you're able to keep keep a handle on things. What I will say though is, you know, you talk about a significant change. Not that I pick it if you look great, mate. Um, but going from playing AFL, AFL football to retirement, obviously there's going to be a change in the way your body is just by virtue. Whereas my body doesn't change like that because it's always sort of been like this. You know, there were some periods where I was playing a bit more sport or whatever. You know, where I or perhaps where I wasn't as fit or, or the rest of it, but my body doesn't change that much. And so how my body reacts is fairly consistent because there isn't a huge change in physiology. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, mate, I, I'm cautious that we don't have a lot of time left. I could talk to you all day. I, I want to just ask a couple more, I guess, broad questions and not so much specific to yourself, although you could probably answer them for yourself. Um, you talked about CGMs and the importance of that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that with that continual graph that you've got, you wouldn't be able to do what you are now doing without that amazing technology. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And and how important, you know, obviously for you that the the financial side, but now the fact that everyone has access to that. I mean, how how good has that news been over the that's last? The most amazing thing. Yeah, sorry, Kay, off there, but that's the most amazing thing ever. When I saw that. Behind getting my medical back to fly, that was probably the most exciting thing. I actually had friends, non-diabetic friends, messaging me, seeing it on, you know, that it had been announced, saying, how cool is this? Because they understand the importance of it. The level of management monitoring that CGM affords is significant. It's it's life-changing technology. I can't think of being able to manage my type 1 without CGM. Honestly, like, CGM is amazing. It's and and not only from a practical management side of it and the data gathering and, and the health and long-term money saving with regards to hospitalization and all sorts, just from a social standpoint, I check my blood sugar, bang, look at my watch. How easy is that, you know? Yeah. How how unoffensive and, and inobtrusive is that? Just bang, one quick look and, you're, and, you know, it's been amazing. It's been done wonders for my confidence as well with regards to what I can and can't do as a human being. It's massive. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And, you know, we always say to people, your individual management is up to you and we encourage you to do what works best for you. And I currently don't have, I'm, I'm about to, 
you know, trial one now that they are subsidised um, and get back onto one. But, uh, yeah, you hear just everyone that is on ACGM or has tried ACGM can't speak highly enough. As mm-hmm. you said, it's not just the actual management side of things, but the actual lifestyle on top of that in terms of what it all, you know, you could be out with your friends and, as you said, you don't need to prick your fingers or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, the next one you talk, I want to ask you about, you know, you've said a couple of times how, how amazing wrecks have been and how supportive they have been for you and, and of you. I think there is uh, still a lot of people, uh, whether they're going for a job or they get diagnosed and they're working and they are worried about telling a prospective employer about, you know, the fact they live with diabetes and, you know, there's issues still around with discrimination and those kinds of things. Now, you, your hand was forced to tell Rex, obviously, because you lost your medical um, through that. But what would you say to people in terms of, you know, owning who they are and, and getting that support through your employer and, and your experience through Rex? Um, well, Rex, both at a management and a collegial standpoint, have been incredibly supportive. So both managers and the people I work with day to day just get around, just got around me so much. Um, with regards to telling employers, I mean, what I would say is, and I'm fervently of this view, type 1 diabetics are better operators because they have to be. They have to do everything normal people do, but they do it with type 1 and with management of type 1. And people shouldn't be afraid under any circumstances. And in fact, it would reflect incredibly poorly on an employer if that was to even register on their radar. That shouldn't be a factor in in decision-making whatsoever on any facet. So I think ultimately what a... What a what a person who did it with a type 1 diagnosis does is totally up to them and totally what they feel comfortable with. I think, you know, everyone's different and I understand the bit, like, you know, come from an incredibly private family and it's the same thing. Like, you, I understand that, you know, at times you want to, you know, discretion is the best, better part of valour. You want to exercise that. But there is absolutely no reason, in my opinion, that an individual should ever feel embarrassed about their type 1 and nor should it inhibit their ability to work. Um, and, I just think, yeah, people, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, we're part of a, we're part of a very select group, and that we are. You know, how harm we have to deal with it. But at no point do I think it's, do I think it's, should it be registered on anyone's radar? And people, are, there's some amazing people with type one that do amazing things, and they do an incredible job. You know, and you, you, yourself playing AFL football, Jerry as a doctor. Um, you know, half the Aussie Diamonds netball side has you know, one at the moment, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah Clow, obviously. Um, there's a Sydney Swans chap whose name I, who, you know, I can't remember. I've got a great friend of mine who lives in London, very successful lawyer, another friend of mine who manages a football club and does a great job you know, in his professional finance career. Like, there's absolutely no reason why, by, under any metric, that anyone should feel type one limits them professionally. I completely agree. And, you talked about those people from, you know, whether it be sport um, or, you know, any other professional setting and, and how well they're doing. Um, you mentioned your networks and your your networks and how supportive they were when you got diagnosed, your mum and your sister, um, you know, your friends when you were in Perth initially, how good your housemates were when you moved back to Sydney. We do talk a lot through Diabetes Victoria about the importance of networks and the importance of community. Um did you start to surround yourself or, or reach out to people living with diabetes? To, to Obviously, you've got Jeremy who not only 
is, I guess, a bit of a trailblazer, but it's the same job and also um, lives with type 1. But how important has that been to have a diabetes community or is it more just about having friends that understand or is it a bit of both? Bit of both, definitely, bit of both. I will say my – I just one person you failed to mention there was my dad. My dad provided an amazing support to me as well, so I just want to say Sorry to the that. old man. No, no, not at all. He, he, he'd be neither here nor there for the big fella, but I just wanted to say that, of course, along with all those people I mentioned. You absolutely have to surround yourself both with just good friends, but also in my experience, it really did help to surround myself with people that were could relate to what I was going through because it is very unique, at least initially, and um, you have to be able to lean on those people and and just ask tips like, hey, how what was your blood sugar today? <laughs> you know, yeah. how did you go? You know, and I remember having dinner with a friend of mine and and compare it you're like this is a weird thing but you know, we obviously we were different levels of insulin sensitivity and the way we had we were operating on different carb to insulin ratios and just seeing how our body reacted to that and you know it was just one of those things but I think I was what really helped yeah was reaching out to friends and they reached out to me as well you know I had mates that who had type one that found out I had type one and reached out to me and said, mate, like, you know, you'll be right. And conversely, I reached out to new people from walks of life that I never even thought I would be able to, um, you know, people I never thought I would cross paths with. And they were generous enough in their time and generous enough in, in what they were doing to be like, no, it's okay. And come together. You know, the type one community is an amazing community really yeah. is. They get around everyone. So, you need an amazing support network in your close friends and family, but you also do think I think you need that support network of people that have faced the challenges that you're now beginning to face. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you. It, it truly is an amazing community. And I think when you meet someone who's connected to diabetes, whether it be, you know, the parent of a child or it could be the partner of someone or it could be someone themselves living with diabetes, whatever it might be, you instantly feel a connection with them in some way if you find out that they've got diabetes and it is you, you want to you almost feel like your best friends before you even meet someone sometimes yeah. it, it really is a weird sort of thing yeah i think that's yeah no absolutely absolutely couldn't agree more and you know you immediately bond over this this big stitch up which is great <laughs> but yeah. like you you do and you and that person understands what you the things you face to face and they also understand that significance of, of what you go out and do each day so um no yep. it's it's it is what it is you know but it's it's a great community and like just the other day you know i was fortunate enough to go go flying with a couple of um type one kings and queens on just a little jolly over sydney harbour and um you know just it, firstly the significance of having four endocrine battlers flying around an airplane above sydney harbour was fairly cool but yep. then beyond that you know that these people were generous enough in their time to support me um, but also to just go and just be part of the world with, you know, go out and do what we were doing. It was very cool, very cool thing to be a part of. Right, I did see those on Instagram and they looked very, very cool indeed. I was jealous here down in, it was cold Melbourne at that stage uh, and it was lovely weather in Sydney on a Saturday night. The lights were gorgeous and it looked like yeah. a very nice light. Yeah, we locked out, I have to say. We locked out yeah. massively. Absolutely, mate. I, look, as I said, we, we've just about run out of time. I, I couldn't thank you enough for, I mean, sharing your story um, and also being so determined in getting back to what you're doing. I mean, the fact that it's 12 months from diagnosis back to what you're doing, it is incredible. I'm glad that things seem to be going well and you're loving it and, and you're back doing what you love. If I leave you to finish with anything, whether it be a form of advice or something else you want to talk about or anyone you want to thank, 
I will leave it with you, Ben. But uh, yeah, please, anything you want to get off your chest, mate? Uh, I think the last, just you know, the last two things I'll say is I had a very fast return of form, but I that shouldn't be the metric for everyone to operate under. Yeah. If people need, people should be able to take as much time to process and deal with everything that they have to deal with. And if they need to walk through the wilderness for however long, they should be allowed to do that. So while I was able to come back and do what I did in a period of 12 months, it's important to understand that that's not always appropriate, nor is it the right way to go about it. And I wouldn't advocate for anyone to put themselves under more duress to learn to manage type one under a Titan frame. Um, I would say just go about it organically. And it's very much, pro- you know, trust. The- I had a, a friend of mine that owns a gym and he always used to say, trust the process. And yep. it is one of those things, trust the process. Um, I suppose my parting thought, last thing I'll say is just thank you to everyone. Um, I think I've mentioned pretty much everyone, my friends, family, colleagues, the company I work for, um, an amazing medical team, Um and just, you know, at the end of the day, type 1 diabetics are the best operators in the world, in my opinion, because they have to be. you got to be tough and confident. And to be afforded the opportunity to go be the first guy to fly an airliner in Australia was pretty cool. And just it wouldn't have been possible without an amazing support network. And it wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't down to me, really. It was, it was down, to, um, down to an amazing group of people around me that lifted me up and helped me rise to a pretty life-defining challenge. So. No, just thanks to everyone that, you know, anyone that ever said anything, anyone that ever came up to me in a pub and said, you'll be right. Anyone that ever said, well done, everyone that ever sent a message, it was, um, it was significant and it wasn't lost on, it wasn't lost on me. So thank you. Thank you for everything. Very well said, mate. Very well said. Uh, genuine. Um, as I said, it's a great story and type one diabetics is the best operators. Um, not biased at all, mate. I have to completely agree with you. No, it's absolutely <laughs> terrific, mate. Well said. Uh, as I said, Ben Siv, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great story. I appreciate you being so open and it's been great to chat with you on the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to contact us, it's very easy. Simply send an email to podcast at diabetesvic.org.au or, of course, all the information you'll need is on the website, diabetesvic.org.au dot org dot au